welcome to, or welcome back to, the Journey Through Life podcast. I am Justin Barton, and this is my show. Some of you may or may not have already listened to this podcast before, but it's all about ordinary people with extraordinary stories and allowing a space where people can reflect on their own lives and look inward to learn wisdom from the life lessons and experiences of the guests of this show. I also invite my awesome guests to share some of the things that are most important to them so that future generations can receive words of wisdom directly from those who live their lives and experience the world today. If you have not already subscribed, go do it now for free in whatever podcast platform you are hearing this on. That way, you can continue to reflect and learn from the experiences of current, past, and future guests. If you haven't already reviewed and rated the, this podcast, what in the world is holding you back? Please take 30 seconds and give us a 5-star rating and write a 10-word review. You can also like us on Facebook and Instagram. The handle is at JTL Podcast for both of those platforms. Also, you can check out the website and nominate yourself or a loved one to be a future guest right here at www.jtlpod.com. Now, before giving a bit of background on this episode and conversation with C.J. Eager, I'm really excited to tell you about a special 12-week series that the Journey Through Life podcast will be doing starting January 6th, 2020. It will be called Journey in Recovery, and we will be having real, meaningful, uplifting, and educational conversations with real recovering addicts of all kinds and from many, many backgrounds. We will be covering one of the 12 steps of recovery in each week. Now, it'll be a powerful opportunity to educate some on addiction and recovery. It will also be a place where we can understand that addicts are just like you and me, but have an illness that must be treated just like diabetes or any other chronic illness. It will be powerful to all those who will allow themselves to listen and take to heart the stories and lessons learned of these amazing men and women who will be participating. Now, this episode with C.J. Eager is one of the most thought-provoking and heart-string-tugging episodes we've done to date. His story is powerful and tragic and reflective and uplifting. There are so many options that I could have used when, ge when giving this episode a title. But in the end, I have chosen When Would You Let a Loved One Go? A Journey Through Life with C.J. Eager. Throughout this conversation, there are so many lessons and insights and heart-wrenching moments that C.J. addresses with wisdom, grace, and realness. Now, before we get started, please go check out our sponsors, alifeuntold.com, and use promo code JUSTIN at checkout to save 10% on a fantastic personalized and hardbound book of your own personal history to be left as a legacy for those who come after you. Also check out www.shepherdbrackets.com for awesome brackets to create your own open shelving concept in your kitchen, bathroom, or anywhere else you would like some stylish and high quality floating shelves in your home. Use promo code JTLPOD5 to save 5% on all orders there. Now let's jump right into this very meaningful and self-reflective conversation with CJ Eager. The conversation could be a marriage saver or perhaps even a lifesaver to you and anyone else who will encounter wintry seasons and tragedies in life. So, if while listening you think, huh, so-and-so should really hear this podcast, 
then please share it with so-and-so and with everyone else in your circle of influence. Now here we go with When Would You Let a Loved One Go? A Journey Through Life with C.J. Eager. Okay, so I'm sitting down today with C.J. Eager and I'm really grateful to have this opportunity. C.J. and I, CJ and I our families go back a long ways. Um, he and I are a little bit different in age, so our, our circles didn't interact as much as, as some of his older siblings did. But I'm really grateful, CJ, to sit down with you. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing today and like uh, for living, your family, a little bit about that. And then we'll talk a little bit more about uh, background. Sure. So um, I did my undergrad work at Arizona State University and then um, kind of on a whim decided to go to law school mm-hmm. and kind of fell into the area of estate planning and probate work which uh, is one of the most uh, boring areas of law, or at least can be, but um, it definitely leaves a lot of time for family. So um, a few years back, I started a law firm with a couple friends uh, called Copper Canyon Law based out of Mesa, Arizona. And uh, I do that to this day. Yeah. And and you focus on probate and estate law, huh? Yeah. You know, all the... It seems like every day I get to sit down with people and, and plan their demise, which is a little depressing. But you know what? We have fun with it. And I think it's healthy to face our own mortality and leave a plan in place that's it's good for our, our legacy. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you've seen situations where uh, plans weren't made beforehand and how they may have gotten a little bit messy, huh? Oh, every day. We, every day. I, just this week, I'll, I'll visit the hospital two or three times. i rushing out to appointments of people who waited 85 years to put something in place. And, and now, you know, a health condition here or there has caused exigent circumstances, which isn't ideal. So that's yeah. a, sh- a shameless plug for everyone and anyone to put something in place. <laughs> awesome. And do it through you if you're around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Arizona, no. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> awesome. Well, good. So, so CJ, tell me a little bit about your earliest, you know, memories, some of the things that you did as a young child that kind of had an effect on you, you know, starting out as young as you can remember. Sure. So um, I think like you had prefaced, you kind of know my family a little bit. I came from a, a family of uh, an older sister, and then four older brothers, and then me. And so I'm the youngest. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot of blessings and curses of being the youngest. But I think one of the big blessings for me was that I had these uh, awesome examples of siblings and parents in front of me. And I kind of got to watch what worked for them, what didn't work. Uh, mm. uh, they were kind of my... Uh, my guinea pigs, so to speak, but mm. the, that I love. In fact, I remember my last day of law school, I had to submit a, a paper. And I knew that once I hit the send button, that I was done. I was done mm. with law school the second I hit send. And uh, before I hit send, I remember I opened up an email and I added all my siblings on there. And I just told them all, thank you. Uh, because I felt like me getting to that point uh, was a collection of all the little things that they had taught me through the years. Not, not that I need to be overly proud. Law school is a big accomplishment, but it's not the only, 
only accomplishment in life. But mm-hmm. I, I definitely took a moment there to pause and say, you know, I definitely would not have gotten here had each one of my siblings not showed me a, a different nuance of life and a different skill set. Uh, so my earliest, so you, going back to your question, I guess you said, what's my earliest uh, memories of shaping who I was? And um, I can definitely attribute who I am today, not only to my family, but friends. I, you know, I grew up in a great neighborhood uh, where I felt like I always had a, a friend close who would, would help help make a good decision or bad, or bad right, decisions, right. but, but, uh, more often than not good decisions. So yeah, definitely blessed there. Well, very good. Tell me a little bit about the influence of your parents in your life. My parents are both from a, a mountain town in Air, Eastern Arizona called Eager, Arizona, which is, of course is my last name. So right. my, my great, great grandfather founded Eager. My mom and dad are uh, both born and raised in that town. And, you know, I consider that a huge blessing um, just because I think they had a simpler approach to life as far as work ethic and uh, being frugal. And, uh, you know, I, I always kind of teased my father that he, he only had one hobby and that was uh, horses. He, he mm-hmm. loved horses and he really didn't invest any money or time into, into other hobbies that maybe a lot of people do invest time in. Um, and being around him working and caring for those horses, you know, nothing would make my dad more mad than if he came home after a late day of work. And if he found out that the horses hadn't been fed, mm. it, it's like it offended him personally mm. on a very personal level that those horses went an extra two hours without eating their meal. Mm. And so uh, just little things like that, that really taught me how to, you know, just that good work ethic and, um, you know, trying to make make the world a little bit better place, I guess. And that, that really formed kind of who I am today, I'd like to think. And, you know, it's funny because my dad had a lot of uh, strengths and, you know, of course, he had a lot of weaknesses. And mm-hmm. the older I get, the more I say, oh, I would never, I'd never turn out like, uh, you know, some of the stubborn aspects of my dad. And I see it, I see it creeping into my life. And, huh. And I, I just laugh about it, about that. And so, yeah, so definitely, you know, my parents left a big impression on me. And to this day, as you know, my father has passed away suddenly, but my mom, uh, to this day, she's still, she keeps our family. She's the glue to our family. And, and again, same thing, just, um, the way she lives her life and the way she puts the, the gospel first has just shaped us to who we are today. Awesome. So, and and we'll get a little bit to the story of your father's passing. I think, I think we'll get there in this conversation, Yeah. but I want to share a little bit of my, one of the funny anecdotes from your father, from my life. Um, he was one of my leaders when I was a youth growing up. Um, and uh, I remember something he said, oh, several times <laughs> when we'd get together and do either a service project or something is a whole bunch of youth. Yeah. And, and, and I want to go back. You have four brothers. Is that right? Yep. Uh-huh. Five boys. Yeah. Five boys. Sister. Yep. Right. Um, he would say when, when we were working together, he'd say one boy is one boy, two boys is half a boy and three boys is no boys at all when it came to doing <laughs> something, you know, yeah. and uh, you have, you know, a, a five of you there. What, <laughs> how did you guys work together? And I'm sure it wasn't necessarily, 
uh, a reflection of how you and your brothers were working together and doing things together with chores and whatever. Maybe it was, but I'm sure it wasn't directly that. I think it was more life lessons that he learned that brought that up. But that phrase I've, I've repeated a hundred times as I've been a youth leader and whatever, because I've seen the truth in it. So tell me a little bit about your experience in working with your dad and your brothers together. Well, it's funny you say that because I just always saw my dad when I was young as a taskmaster. I mean, we never, every, I always hear friends and people talk about how much they love Saturdays. Oh, Saturday's such a a great day (laughs) off. I just laugh and laugh at that concept growing up. You know, here's a good example. We, we were required to wake up at six o'clock every Saturday and do, mm-hmm. and we would work till about three or four in the afternoon. And so I always heard my friends talking about the Saturday morning cartoons that they loved. And I have never even heard of most of these cartoons because I, we've never watched Saturday morning cartoons. We were always just working. So Saturday was a work day. Mm. Um, in fact, I remember on the off chance that they would let me do a sleepover at a friend's house or something. I, I was always mortified because it didn't matter whose house I was sleeping at. The phone would ring at 6 a.m. And, and I would frantic. And I always knew I would hear the phone ring in my friend's house and I would run as fast as I could through my friend's house and pick up the phone. This was before caller ID and all that because I knew it was my dad. It, it, and it would always be six o'clock on the dot because I knew that he, that was the rule. I can sleep over at my friend's house as long as you're home at six o'clock through chores. But getting back to the call of your question on how do we all work together, uh-huh. um, I am now impressed that my I, I always my my siblings, my brothers, and my sister we were always working together with my dad, and I try to do that today with just two of my sons, and I just want to pull my hair out. You know, it's just <laughs> it's such a nightmare, and and so I really reflected on that of how impressed I am that he was how much probably effort and energy he went through to get us all working together. And, and, you know, now today I, I can't, I'm so thankful uh, for that work ethic that, that he instilled in us, uh, him and my mom uh, to make sure that we were all working together, even though maybe it probably took a job twice as long <laughs> as, as a result of it. And there is power, there can be power in working together in that, um, you know, when I saw my brothers working, nobody wants to be the weak link. And uh, I think I, I have to assume that is one of the many blessings of being organized in families is that we have people, no one, no one wants to be, no one wants to be the guy who's not doing his part. So uh, seeing my, bro- again, attributing my brothers and my sister, just seeing them working hard with my dad made me want to work hard with my dad. So mm. yeah, that's definitely a blessing. No, that's interesting. And, and and I love how you put, you know, other people would say we love Saturdays and Saturday was a day of, it was not a day of fun and relaxation necessarily for you and your family. Yeah. I mean, you, you read the Bible, there was only one day of rest. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we, 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 my dad stuck us to that. Nice. <laughs> Do you have any resentments or harbor any bitter bitterness about that at all today as you look back at that? Oh, I've, I've written Oprah Winfrey many letters trying to get on her show to lash out on my parents. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, I mean, just such a huge blessing. And I have to remind myself that because there's times where I look at my kid, my own kids now, and I say, oh, I just try to let them off. Maybe like, you know, I'm not going to hold that. And I say, no, one day, one day they'll look, look across the table of time and, and be grateful that we made them see a job through to the end. And I can't tell you how many times in 
while we are in this adult living uh, that you want to quit on a job or you want to quit this or that. And mm. I look back and, and remember just, Hey, that's not what we do. That's, and I don't want to be that wink link in, in life. Yeah. So, so let's look at your life in college and grad law school. Was there ever a time where you just said, I want to quit, I'm done with this. And then, you Oh quit. yeah, no, de- definitely. Um, lots of, lots of times I remember, um, you know, some of, but some of those failures can be some of the greatest blessings in life. I, one example specifically in my first year of law school, I uh, took a class called torts, which it, this is embarrassing to even uh, announce this over uh, the airwaves here, but I got, I actually did pretty well in law school, but that one class, I don't know what happened. I got a really, really bad grade, like to the point, I didn't fail the class, but just about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember initially I had a little bit bitter feelings about it. And then um, I went at office hours, I went and visited with my professor and I said, hey, I don't think I deserved that bad of a grade. And he said, well, let's walk through your your exam together. Mm -hmm. Then we went through the essays and as we went along, I started reading my responses and I thought, okay, that is pretty bad. Uh, mm-hmm. Why did I put that? And why did I put this? And I really messed this one up. And my professor looked at me and said, you know, that that's why you got a bad grade. Hey, but you're not dropping out of law school this time. Uh, you're good to go. You just got one bad grade. And I ended up almost offending myself by that exam. But from that day forward in law school, I made a concerted effort to not let that happen again. And same thing. uh, When I graduated law school, I I wrote an email to that same professor and I told him in that letter, thank you so much for giving me that horrible score. And he wrote back and was kind of confused. Oh, you're welcome. You know, but (laughs) I said, no, you know what? I said, had I not gotten that horrible score, I would never really know my weaknesses. And, mm. you know, the scriptures teach us that we, we need to understand our weaknesses so that they can become strengths. And it did become strength, a uh, strength in my life. And, mm. and so you said something there that was interesting and I want to dig a little bit. So I better understand it. You said I offended myself with that test and I didn't want to offend myself again. Tell me what that means to you. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I love, I love Mosiah three nineteen, and not to, get to scripture diving on you, but the natural man is an enemy to God. And, and, and what does that mean? You know, naturally we all, we are who we are, right? We're, we are the natural form of ourselves. And I love that heavenly father tells us in that scripture, be better, be better than who you are, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, be better than natural. And so when I say I offended myself, I said, I earned the grade that I got, mm-hmm. uh, but that's who I am naturally. I am going to be better than that natural man. So mm. yeah, did I offend myself? I offended my potential, maybe not myself, but my, mm. I definitely offended my potential. So I like that. I like how you put that. Is there another time that you can think of where, where maybe a lesson was learned offending yourself, not living up to what you thought that you're willing to share? Yeah. And, and I'll actually tie it back to some of the life lessons uh, my father taught me. You know, I, I prefaced that my dad, he was a frugal guy and didn't, didn't live any kind of high life by any means. In fact, if I were, if someone were to ask me when I was in my teenage years, 
where are you in the class system of, of the United States? Mm. I would have assumed, I would have just said, I don't know, lower middle class. Mm. You know, we don't get all the toys that we want. We don't, you know, we live pretty simply. Whether or not that was true is another thing. But uh, one time where I kind of offended myself, my parents taught me how to be frugal and, and things like that. And I was a newlywed and I had, I was just about to get into law school and I was, I was taking, I was going to make this investment in some real estate. That was a silly example, but mm-hmm. I immediately f- that felt bad or felt wrong. Or like, mm-hmm. I shouldn't be doing that. I need to live, live more simply. And, um, which is a, a great principle, definitely right. to live more simply. But, and I went to my father to get a confirmation that I was to live more simply because hmm. I thought if anyone's going to reaffirm my decision not to take this route, then it would be my father. So hmm. I went and I visited with him and he, and I said, Hey dad, I, I was thinking about possibly taking this business opportunity with real estate and da, 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 Just, I was geared up really ready for him to say, yeah, you know, you need to wait, you're young and mm-hmm. you know, get, preach, preach that frugal lifestyle to me. I was shocked with what he said. He said, you know, CJ, and, and keep in mind, my dad, he, he was an older cowboy guy and, and didn't ramble off his thoughts. So when he mm-hmm. said something, I, I, you had to listen. And um, he said, you know, CJ, I regret not sticking my chin out a little more. And that really shocked me. Mm. And I thought, oh, now the continuing story of that one sentence he told me is to this day, my wife and I have attributed maybe eight to 10 massive decisions that we've had to make all off of that one sentence he told me that one day. Mm. And where I would not have done these decisions that I've decided to make all from that one sentence where Mm. he said he regrets not sticking his chin out a little more so, you know, I think it's good to pick good mentors in your life and people that you trust. And I think as someone doing the mentoring is, uh, is to be careful what you say. And because someone might just hang on to every word mm. <laughs> as, as I did with my father's that day. So, Huh. And I'm assuming that some of those eight or 10 massive decisions have turned out okay. And some have not. Is that a safe assumption? You know, I got to be honest with you, for the most part, they've all turned out pretty okay. And I mean, definitely, definitely plenty of hiccups and, and potholes along the way for sure. Mm -hmm. But, but, but I I needed both, right? I needed a life, a life, uh, my whole childhood, I lived a life of prudence and being careful and conservative in my decision-making only for the very tail end of his life to tell me, don't be afraid to stick your neck out there. Mm. Well, th- those both serve as amazing springboards for me to make good decisions. Yeah. Very interesting. So you mentioned the tail end of your father's life. Tell me a little bit about what happened there at the end of his, of his life and maybe one of your last interactions with him and the meaning of that uh, in your life moving forward. Well, that's, that's actually a really interesting question because, um, when I apply, and I know this is getting hyper-focused around uh, law school, but a lot of this hovers around that time period. Right. Um, 
I, when I applied to law school, it's really interesting. If you look up the statistics, I applied to law school, I think in the worst time in the history of the United States of America, there were more applicants going to law school than in any time in US history. Hmm. So getting into a law school was really tricky at the time. And my options were pretty limited. I, I had decent scores on my tests, but nothing, nothing crazy that would, nobody was knocking on my door. Okay. To, to, <laughs> let's put it that way. Uh, I was knocking on theirs. So we had to, we went away back to the Midwest for, for law school. Now, while I was there, I felt promptings that I needed to apply to transfer after my first year back to ASU. Hmm. And I didn't, you know, and I, I wasn't totally sure why I was getting those promptings other than just, you know, good to be home, I guess. Right. But, one of the last conversations that I had with my father, um, he called me, it was getting towards the end of my first year. And he called me and said, now, are you applying to transfer back uh, to Arizona? And I said, I think so. And he responded in a very stern way. And he said, I think it's really important that you transfer back. It's mm. important. And it's important that you come home. Hmm. And again, my dad wasn't the type to stick his nose in, in that kind of stuff. Hmm. So I remember telling my wife that, that that was really weird. It seemed like he had some sense of urgency that I, I really needed to make sure that I applied. Hmm. And um, the next Sunday, I uh, uh, got a phone call. I was getting ready for my first exam, uh, first final exam for law school. Mm. Uh, the next morning and that evening I got a phone call that he, he had had a stroke and passed away. So the, yeah, I think I, you know, this, the scriptures teach us a lot about the importance of the messages you leave as you depart this world. And I think, um, there's a really good example there because as a result of him really encouraging me to do that, I did get into, uh, Arizona state law school, Sandra Day O'Connor. Mm -hmm. And I was able to transfer. And as a result, I was able to be home to be there for my, my mom and um, which eventually led to other opportunities. But um, you know, I've I've reflected on that quite often on Mm. his, his words and encouraging me to do that. Well, one of my last interactions with him on this earth. Wow. That's pretty powerful um, experience of, of, of him being pretty direct with you saying, Hey, you need to get, get back home. Yeah. So I recall that period of time in my life quite clearly. And I'm, I, this isn't about me. It's about you, but I think this will add a little bit of background into this conversation. Oh, definitely. I had recently moved back to that neighborhood where we grew up and was in the same, you know, church congregation and, and everything. And I, my, my assignment was as a scout master working with the kids and we were preparing for an encampment with the scouts, just this huge, a new um, encampment doing some really cool things. And your dad was a part of that in getting, helping get some awards together, cutting mesquite and getting these things all together. And he was a big part, a big part of that. And I was actually over at uh, Scott Jackson's house, looking at the, the, the mesquite that had been cut when all of a sudden all heck broke loose and people are running down the street and, and we got to get over to, to, to Ruben. And, and 
I was just like, what's going on? And Scott took off and he was, he was gone. And it wasn't until later that I found out what was going on. And, and I just remember the, the impact that your dad continues to have in so many people's lives in that area. Like I said, it was a, I had fairly recently moved back and I remember shaking hands with your dad a couple of times, the couple of Sundays before that and thinking, huh, he's getting old <laughs> yeah, yeah, and not knowing anything. You know, I don't, right. I don't think anybody knew what was going on. Yeah. Nobody knew. I mean, he had a stroke, but what led to that? What was Yes. So just a week or so prior, he had now keep, keep in mind going back to that old cowboy thing. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't one much for doctors. And right. so my mother kind of cracked the whip and said, Hey, you're, you're going to go, we're going to get a blood test done. Mm-hmm. So they did a blood test mm-hmm. and um, leading up to Sunday, he wasn't feeling the best, but nothing crazy. I mean, he was mowing the lawn, doing the mm-hmm. Saturday six to four chores. Right. Yeah. So he, he was doing all his chores, everything. And then Sunday came along. And if I recall right, you know, the, the brain is kind of funny. It, it suppresses something sometimes. Right. But, um, if I recall correctly, he didn't go to church. Or, or went to part of church, but not all of it. Mm-hmm. And then um, they were sitting down for a, a meal. And I think my brother was over there. And um, out of nowhere, uh, my father turned to my mother and said, we need to go. He said, mm-hmm. we need to go or something to that effect. And my mom said, where? And he said, we need to go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And And if... Again, being someone who didn't ramble his mouth a lot, like going back to that same notion of if, if you say something, then people, and you don't say a lot, then people are going to take everything you say mm-hmm. uh, as in being important. And that's kind of how Ruben was. And, and my mom didn't skip a beat. She ran, got the keys. And um, before they could even get halfway to the hospital, uh, he, he, he passed away. Uh, they, they put them on life support and things like that. But, but it, it was a, now after the fact, and this is kind of the oddity of it all is that they got those, the lab work mm-hmm. while he was in the hospital. Oh, wow. And they looked into the lab and they said, did you know that he had leukemia? Hmm. And all of us shook our heads like what? And they said, yeah, he, he had acute leukemia and the doctor basically explained again, I'm no physician, but, that leukemia combined with the stroke that he had was kind of like a, a perfect storm. Mm. It's what, it's what took his life so fast. Mm. Is that a silver lining to the story? I don't, I don't know, but there's never a a right way to pass away. I think when they go suddenly, they don't have to suffer a lot, but it doesn't leave much time for many people to say goodbye. And then the opposite is had one or the other happened he would have been in a tough medical condition for months, if not years. So I don't know. It's tough. We're just grateful that, um, grateful that we don't have to answer those questions. So that's what ultimately took his life. Yeah. How how do you reconcile a quick death like that? I mean, some people may say I didn't get a chance to say goodbye um, and be bitter about that maybe, or, and others maybe at least, you know, he didn't suffer or whatever. How, how does that work in your mind? 
Yeah, so it's really interesting. At Ruben's funeral, we played a record. My brother played a recording of my father speaking at his sister's funeral. Mm, so, so he got to Ruben in a sense got to speak at his own funeral, mm. and in that recording, he shares a quote. He he expresses the concept and the notion of when would we, when would we let a loved one go? Mm. You know. They said, when is the right time? There is no right time. And, and he said that if God left that up to us, maybe very important things that have happened in this world would, would have been prevented. He said, we may have even prevented the atonement from happening. Now, mm. I don't know the doctrinal soundness of that statement, but, but nonetheless, it's, it's a valid concept of mm. we just give thanks to Heavenly Father that that's not left up to us because... There, there would be no right time and we, we would probably mess things up. So mm. now let's, let's dovetail on that. Let's build yeah. on that. You in the last few years have had another tragedy in your life that many, I'm sure possibly you also look at and say, that's not the right time. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, this is, you know, darn it. It, this is when a guy need, wants to censor himself a little bit because this is a tricky one for me. This mm. is a, a really tricky one. Uh, it's tricky because I think a lot of people have expressed um, a lot of different ideas. And I think it was other Oaks that talked about the spirit world. And he expressed the concept that there are lots and lots and lots of people out there who are expressing a lots and lots and lots of different ideas on mm. <laughs> what the spirit world is, mm-hmm. what what it's like there, mm-hmm. wh- what what they have seen in a dream or what they've been prompted or what they've written a book about. Mm-hmm. And it, it can leave a person, you know, with their own devices to say, well, if Jan down the road had that dream about the spirit world, then mm-hmm. it must be true or, be you true. know, whatever. But I, I'm grateful for that talk in this last conference that basically said, hey, we are to take any promptings and feelings and really you know, as Mary was, was commanded to, to ponder it in your heart mm. and see how do I benefit from this knowledge mm. uh, and to not really express it as sound canonized doctrine. Right. So, right. So now going into my topic of uh, was a person passing away the timing of that, it was that necessary or not. I, this sounds horrible and it sounds maybe slightly ignorant, but I, I choose not to even speculate on that. Mm. And I mean, no disrespect to anyone that's communicated to me. I We've had people share that they believe it was divine timing. Yeah. And, 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 and I don't discredit that at all, but I'm, I'm, I, I go back to what my father shared at the funeral. When would we let them go? And, yeah. and, and so, so I don't know, it, it, it's tough to say if this, if timing of a, of a person's passing is, divinely guided. I'm sure there are instances where that was the case. Mm-hmm. And, and I think many, many people pass away just due to accidents that happen in mortality. And, yeah. and um, I, I'd like to think that regardless of when or how or where we go out of this life, we're, we're going to be somewhere better. Mm. So tell me about that, uh, that situation with your daughter. Yeah. So um, we definitely uh, three and a half wow. years ago, um, my wife and I had just moved into a different house in the same neighborhood. 
that we were fixing up. And I had come home from, uh, from work that day. And at the time we had a daughter, Piper, Piper was six years old. Our daughter, Kimball, uh, was four years old. Our son, Russell was a two and a half. And I came home from work and the, the kids were playing inside the house and they said they wanted to go to the park. That was a, it was behind our house. There was a, a residential road in between our house and the, the park and the kids all, and some neighborhood kids were over and they all ran out of the house around our house. And as I was catching up to them, um, I could see that they were coming up to the corner and I told them, Hey, go ahead and stop. I yelled up ahead, stop at the corner and being good, obedient kids, they, they stopped at the corner. Um, our daughter, Kimball, the four and a half year old, she was in front. She was one of the shorter ones out in front of all the little kids and not knowing to even think she, all she could see was the park across the way. And mm-hmm. she, she took off running. Um, a, a gentleman that lived in the neighborhood was driving and it was, it was evening like about five o'clock in the afternoon, the sun was setting and um, it, it blocked his vision. He couldn't see. And, and unfortunately, he hit our daughter. And I, I wasn't sure what had happened, honestly, because I, I didn't see the actual actual impact. I was just standing close by. And I didn't even really run. I wasn't sure what had happened. But I, I kind of jogged over to see what happened. And I looked down and I could see it was my daughter. So uh, kind of being shocked and stunned, we... we began uh, CPR, me and some other people in the neighborhood came running over the, you know, ambulance was called, a helicopter flew in. um, And, you know, that was just, it it was, it was all happening so fast and it just didn't seem much real was, was happening. Try to speaking objectively here. um, The, they they took her to the hospital and said there was nothing they could do and um she passed away uh they were saying on on impact of the vehicle that now this this kind of thing happens from time to time we know that um it happens and i mean it happens probably pretty frequently throughout the united states what what kind of made our story a little unique was we came home from the hospital and my wife she began to have contractions and a handful of hours after we got home from the hospital, we rushed back to the hospital and she delivered our son Harvey. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what um, I think maybe what shocks people the most about our story is, is just, you know, our daughter being gone one second and a new son being brought right into our family, right in that, in that storm that's, I think that's kind of the, the drastic nature of what happened with us. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's been a, it's been, yeah, like I said, three and a half years now and, and uh, it doesn't, doesn't definitely doesn't get easier. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. You, you think it, you think the passing of time would make things easier. It, it definitely, your day to day becomes a little more tolerable, but um, it, it definitely doesn't get easier. That's for sure. Wow. So, so when, Harvey was born just a few hours later, a handful of yeah. hours later. 
what emotions, what feelings are going through your mind? I mean, that's such a, like you said, it's just such a, a, a contrast, but tell me, tell me how you dealt with that and how, how your wife dealt with that. Yeah. You know, there's the true uh, heroine of this whole story is my wife. And I'm not saying that just to be a good guy. Um, and, and she has some really interesting perspective on this whole thing. Um, the very odd part of all of this was that the sorrow seemed to collapse us both clearly, but for my wife, Lisa, she didn't have any time to, to process what was going on. She went in and delivered Harvey and just had kind of her game face on, you know, they, you, you hear people say in a very cliche way that women are the real tough ones and da, 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 da. I, I'm here to tell you that's, that's not a cliche. I mean, I was, I was just ruined. My mind was just putty, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I had no, and, and if I'm being quite honest with you, I don't remember a lot of, of those 24 hours. I really don't. I feel like maybe Heavenly Father put a little insulated bubble around, around us at that time. But for my wife, she, she didn't have time to cry. Mm. There was no, there was no time to cry because she was working and, and delivered Harvey. It wasn't until a day or two later that she could even process what happened with our daughter. So it was a really, really tough. And, you know, we have a lot of, lot of amazing experiences surrounding that, that scene and that scenario. First and foremost is just the service that, that people rendered on, you know, you would like to think and assume that that happens anytime an accident Mm -hmm. happens, Mm -hmm. but there was some really, I'll, I'll just tell you this. I, I don't think we prepared a meal in our home for almost five months. Wow. So five months, we, we didn't prepare a meal once. Of course, we have this new baby in our home. And there were nights where I would be asleep and I would see figures moving through the dark in our, in our bedroom. Mm-hmm. And these were people from our neighborhood. And I know you're thinking, there's no way that's a true story. Mm. It, it's true. People were coming into our home in the night and taking Harvey and rocking him till two, three, four in the morning. And I would see them passing in and out of my bedroom just ever so quietly through the night. Mm. And, um, you know, we would wake up and there would just be a, a breakfast sitting on the table. We have no clue where it came from. I mean, it's like people kind of had an all access to our house during <laughs> during that right, time. Right. But uh, yeah, there would just be meals that would just appear and just the service that Christ-like people have, you know, the rubber really hit the road for, for our community in that time. And, mm. uh, you know, my wife and I will, will forever be in debt. We, there's no, there are not enough hours in the day to repay, repay all those debts, but mm. we're going to try. So how have you used these experiences to try and serve and lift others since then? That's a good question. You know, when you go through something like this, if I could share it there, here's a really interesting thing Mm -hmm. that this is going to sound maybe a little 
edgy or counterculture, but I, I think it's important. I mean, I, I've been approached by publishers and, and different people on writing books about this topic. Mm. Um, and every single time uh, the same thought comes up into my mind, one of the first things I would write about if I was to write about this topic would be, um, and again, please don't judge me too harshly for sharing this, but, <laughs> but uh, the differences between sympathy and empathy in life and how critical it is to understand those differences. And, and that's maybe one of the greatest takeaways that I've received from this whole experience is what, what does that mean to, to have sympathy for someone and to have empathy to summarize a two hour discussion into five minutes, I'll tell mm -hmm. you 99% of the time I have learned that it is probably best to express sympathy towards others. Mm -hmm. And in that rare, rare, rare 1% where you can express true empathy towards another person, that is a very unique gift from God that, you can connect with someone and, and I'll give you just a few anecdotes of our own situation. And again, please don't take this as me being a stubborn guy. It, it's more just, I think it would be healthy for anyone to hear. Absolutely. I mean, maybe two days after the accident with our daughter, I had um, a client touch base with me and express that they had heard what had happened and that their grandfather had just passed away and and they said oh i know exactly how you're feeling our grandfather he was 96 years old mm -hmm. he, he just passed away in his sleep and and i it just in the at the moment it just kind of hurt a little bit like yeah. oh those are two very different <laughs> two, right. two, two very different things here and again this is me just being a stubborn guy but, right. um you know i even had someone say oh you know we lost our family you know, cat a few months mm -hmm. ago and, you know, we understand how you feel and, mm -hmm. and maybe that wasn't the best use. And I can, I can promise you, I have done that to people too. Right. Or, or I have tried to identify too much with someone's problem. Mm. Maybe the best thing for me to be would just give them a hug and tell them I love them. Mm. And, but moments of true empathy. So we had some folks in our neighborhood, unbeknownst to us, 25 some years in the past that had almost the identical situation happen to them. Wow. Uh, their daughter was the same age. The, the wife delivered a new child 10 days after. Wow. Um, just shockingly similar, right? Mm. And they appeared at our living room two or three days after the accident. I woke up, I came downstairs and they were sitting there in the living room. Mm -hmm. And they shared their story with us that story had a profound impact on me mm. for, for the first time in three days. I didn't feel alone. I mm. felt like I was looking in a mirror to someone 25 years down the road. And these are people who I love so much mm. and, and I could see how happy they are mm. to this day in life. And I thought this is going to be the biggest blessing for me to see this family and to see how happy they are. And to know that I can get there, even though I know, and they've shared with me a hundred times how much it still hurts them. Mm -hmm. They they are living a very provident lifestyle, a very a very good, happy life, full of service and joy. Mm -hmm. And 
they have served for my wife and I as being such an invaluable source of empathy. I just can't express. So there have been times in, in, I mean, and, and you can imagine over the last three and a half years, my wife and I, we have spoken at countless youth conferences, hmm. we've spoken at Institute conferences. We've, hmm. you know, the church had, had me write an article mm-hmm. uh, that was published on the website a few weeks ago. And those are hopefully sources that will help people. But we've also, I've also had people that have asked me to, Hey, so-and-so they just had, you know, an accident with their child. Um, would you mind going and speaking with them? Mm. And I'll tell you this much, maybe in the past I would like if, if there were any other circumstances, I probably would, but there have been a handful of times over the last three years where I have felt physically constrained mm. by the spirit to say, do not go visit with that person. Mm. And I know that you say, how is that even possible? No. I, I had just felt, I had just did not feel that empathy in that situation was the right thing to do. I don't know if that's a good thing or or not, but but I, I it's something that has opened and enlightened my eyes in the last three years. That those that, those keen differences in, in and and honestly, the only thing I could tell any listener would be, I hope that you rely on the spirit in everyday living, but especially in those moments where you know you're going to reach out to somebody and and connect with them on that on that level. I think you'll, you'll need the spirit with you. And we've had mm-hmm. moments where, where that has definitely been the case and people in forever indebted for people that listen to the spirit and came and have talked with us when mm-hmm. we needed it. So huge blessing. No, that that's really interesting. And I'd never thought about that. What you said, you know, you, you said, and these are the statistics you use and I'm sure they're just round numbers that you just yeah. kind of pulled out, but 99% of the time sympathy is where, is what is more appropriate in situations right. like that rather than trying to say, Hey, I have been there, even though there is <laughs> right. How, how loosely do you, do you define there with, with empathy, you know? Right. And, and I'm not even saying your accident has to mirror this accident or mm-hmm. your situation needs to match their situation. It's, it's very circumstantial that I honestly don't think any human is adequate to assess, mm-hmm. which is why I truly believe that, if you want to tap into pure empathy, I think the spirit is the only way to do it because mm. there have been times and I'm not going to, this isn't my story to tell, but not long after our accident, we had a friend who, who had some, something very horrific happen to them. And in a situation where I should not have intervened normally, I felt prompted to go intervene. And I did. And the whole time I was driving to the hospital, I thought to myself, what am I doing? This is, I don't think this is appropriate. I'm not even family. It ended up being one of the most spiritual experiences of my life. And that family has since talked to me and said how grateful they were that I was there that day. But, but that, that's just a rare instance where had I not been listening to the spirit, I wouldn't have gotten shown up. Right. You know? so, so I don't know, just, imp- I, I think it's really important uh, distinguishing that and analyzing that in your life and, we all do it. I mean, I, I am so, I, I'm probably one of the worst offenders mm-hmm. of just hearing a story and immediately coming up with my own version of their story and saying, Oh yeah, I, I've done that. Or I've been mm-hmm. there. And, and you know, we all, we all do that in our minds, right. man. I, I think it has been such a blessing in my life over the last three years 
to just calmly look at people and say, I have no idea what you're exactly going through, but I love you. And mm-hmm. that can be more powerful than, than that false empathy. Mm. And, and people who are giving what you called their false empathy aren't doing it to no. consciously one up you or anything, but is it helpful? You know? Right. And I feel bad even, even calling it false empathy. That's maybe right. not the right term for it, but, but just forced empathy maybe mm-hmm. or comparative. You know, empathy. Yeah. Comparative. Yeah, exactly. Any of those terms I think would help to understand that I, I truly believe that there is a sliver of moments where, where you, we could probably truly empathize with someone and, and, and I think relying on the spirit to, to get you there would, would be mm. the best, would, would be the best plan of action there. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a really powerful concept that I've never thought about sympathy versus empathy and, and the appropriateness of each in its own time. And thank you for kind of developing that a little bit. That's really helpful to me. Yeah, no problem. Um, as you look back through your family history, through the lines of your family, is there any ancestor or individual that, whose legacy you really look at and say, I hope that I can build on that legacy for those who come behind me? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think like many of us, we're pioneer stock and and having, you know, my ancestors coming down from Salt Lake to to settle in the, in the white mountains of Arizona, my wife and I, we actually, it's kind of ironic. You bring that up. We on any given Tuesday, one of us aren't feeling well, uh, when it comes to this stuff and we'll be very open and honest that the depression and anxiety that comes with a tragedy like this is just very prevalent. And, and, uh, we're, we're learning how to, cope and handle and manage that one of the best things that has helped my wife and I is when we go up to the mountains where our forefathers came from and neither one of us can really explain it other than the the basic concept of simplicity and being in nature and Mm -hmm. uh, quite honestly I feel close to my dad when I'm up in the mountains than I ever have and Mm -hmm. um I'm kind of an interesting guy. A lot of people like to go visit gravesides a lot. Um, I'm not that guy. I, I, I'm the guy that if I want to get close and I feel, you know, my daughter and I feel my dad close is when I'm up in the mountains. And which is why, despite the fact that I'm not the most physically fit person in the world, I love to hike and uh, I like to get out in, in nature. That That's when I feel closest to them. Um, you know, there's countless examples of people in the Bible and in the scriptures that do that when they need that reprieve and and my wife and I have found the outdoors uh, to be that reprieve for sure. So that's how, that's definitely how we connect to our ancestors in a sense. And that has helped us through this tremendously invaluable for sure. Mm. So let's, uh, this has been really a really cool conversation and I've gotten some insights that have been really powerful for me and I'm sure others will too, but do you have any other maybe experiences or words of wisdom that you'd like that you feel are important to, to yeah. share in conversation. You know, there's, there's two, maybe two last things I'd share. One, one important thing, you know, everybody likes to wonder it was, did God do this to me? Did was, hmm. you know, what was, was this just a circumstance of life or this and that? 
one, one huge thing that really helped me was not long after the accident, uh, one, a general authority came by our house and that was just a unique opportunity that we were able to experience. Uh, nobody should expect that to happen every time right. something bad happens in our life by any means, but it was just the, the, the stars aligned a little bit. And mm-hmm. this general authority shared with us, he said, you know, do you know much about elder Maxwell? And I do. Uh, and they said, you know, elder Maxwell went through a horrific cancer and, and a horrible time. They said he once spoke at a, an event where he talked about a doctrine called the wintry doctrine. Hmm. And um, he said, you ought to look that up sometime. And I said, okay. So I went after and I looked up the wintry doctrine and this was just before he was diagnosed with cancer. So I'm, I'm pretty certain he didn't even know he had cancer at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but he said, there are in the gospel warm and cuddly doctrines. There are also doctrines that are flat out wintry. <laughs> and he said, and those wintry doctrines are that we will not pass through this life without going through those specific clinical experiences that will allow us to return to Heavenly Father. So he says this life is a clinical experience. And he said in order for us to, to understand exaltation, for, uh, for us to understand consecration, we will have to pass through those things that are most difficult for us to do. So again, whether or not this accident was divinely guided or not, I won't speculate that either way we had to go through it. Mm. And I, and I do believe that this life is a clinical experience that we shouldn't anticipate just everything to go right for us all the time. And that, Hey, as long as we're doing what we're supposed to, things are going to turn out. Okay. That's not, Mm. I don't believe that's true. I think, I think Mm. we still have to go through those things. So that's one thing that has really helped Help me, I think, as I reflect on Elder Maxwell's words of just, you know, and, and it's funny because, you know, Lisa and I, we like to think like, well, uh, that big thing is checked off the list. Like, mm-hmm. okay, we, we had to go through something horrific and mm-hmm. now that's not, gonna, you know what, there's probably more coming down the pipe for us. Mm-hmm. And I hope that we can definitely be ready for that. The other big thing that I would, I would share with anyone who has to go through something like this is one last experience I'll share. So shortly after the accident, um, I tried to get back into to work as soon as possible because I thought it might help my, you know, help or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I was traveling to a client's house. And as I was driving, I was listening to this like documentary type thing. Okay. And it was talking about uh, the Columbine mm-hmm. shootings mm-hmm. that happened. Um, and one of the parents of the victims was being interviewed. And the parent said, as the conversation progressed, she said, I have recently divorced my husband. Mm. And I'm pretty certain that they said that every single married couple of a victim of the Columbine shooting has since divorced. Mm. And that blew me away. I thought, you mean to tell me every single victim at Columbine, their parents have divorced since. Mm. And they went on to talk about how these trials were so 
trying on their marriage. And um, I remember I came home from that appointment and I sat down with my wife and I said, and I told her everything that I had heard in that. And I said, I have a feeling that this is going to be rough on our marriage. And um, I do not want to let it be rough. And this is what we learned over the last three years. And again, hopefully maybe people who have been through similar stuff will empathize on this point. Mm. And that is everyone assumed, everyone around you assumes, well, at least you have your spouse. Mm. Can, you can hold each other up and help each other. That is very true. My wife, if I was going through this alone, I would just be a mess. I'd be an institution, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But, but having her with me is so crucial. However, I think one thing I would share is that you may think that a husband and wife are going through a struggle together when really each one of us is going through it in our very own unique way. And instead of sometimes lifting each other up, it turns into what I call the crab bucket theory. And the crab bucket theory is if you throw a bunch of crabs into a bucket, one crab will start to climb out, but inevitably, if you watch, the crabs down beneath will pinch the leg of the one crawling out and drag them back down into the bucket. Mm. And I've, I've heard that analogy before, and um, a marriage going through a trial like this is no different than the crab bucket. And I go through a horrible week, and then f- finally on a Thursday, I'm having a good day, and then I come home kind of feeling like, hey, life isn't that bad. I can do this. I've got this can-do attitude. And to come home and to see your wife curled up on the couch sobbing. And I know the good guy is supposed to go comfort and love. But when you're going through something like this, you kind of get this feeling of resentment of, Mm. oh my goodness, I I was finally having a normal good day. And now here we are again. And, and, and it goes both ways. My wife will be having a great day and all of a sudden my temper is just so short and I'm just so irritable and angry and it clearly is a result of what we're going through. And here she is thinking, man, I was finally having a good day and now you're, you know, Mr. Grumpy here. So I think that's important. I, I would share with anyone who eventually goes through something like this or, or has already gone through something like this is to be hyper cognizant of your marriage and to check in frequently and to have a very open line of communication. My wife and I, we have sat each other down and said, Hey, if I come home and you are struggling, I may have to turn around, (laughs) you know, I may have to turn around and uh, go gas up the car or go run to the bank and, and please don't be offended. It's just me trying to, trying to not jump into the crab bucket and even though, you know, you definitely still need to be there to help each other. Right. Uh, and we, we do that for sure. But that, that's definitely a big lesson that we've learned that I would have never, I would have never anticipated. Mm. Uh, tragedy like this brings on a lot of weird things, weird yeah. sleeping habits, weird diet, weird emotional health, weird mm. mental health. But of all things that I didn't even anticipate, your marriage how that affects your marriage, how that affects, you know, your parenting to your other kids. And uh, I think it's good to be cognizant of all that. Um, So yeah, definitely 
definitely put some equity into your marriage and heighten your your care to your spouse when yeah. something like this happens. How often do you and Lisa have those check-ins? Is it as needed or do you have like scheduled, we do this every day or every third day or whatever? Just, definitely just as needed, but we, I mean, it's, it's nearly daily for the last four years. I mean, we just, we, it's, you just have to, cause it's, it's not going away. It's not like there's some like timetable where, Oh, it's, it's this long. You should be fine now. It's like, mm. well, no, I'm, I'm not. So, so definitely, definitely just look, it doesn't, it doesn't take a, a tragedy like this to say, I'll, I'll share this, this story with you. Okay. Uh, I, 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 my dad taught me how to hunt. In fact, I'm, I'm going on a, a deer hunt this weekend, but Sweet. I wrote a little story about this that I think was important and it ties into this being cognizant of your marriage. So I, last year I went on this deer hunt and I was way up in these mountains. I was trying to hunt these deer that live way high in these peaks. It was out in Eastern Arizona. Mm -hmm. These coos deer that, that are, they call them the gray ghost because mm -hmm. they'll be right in front of you. You just can't see them. So I had been training myself to, sh you know, shoot from long distances and things like that. Well, I'm up in this mountain and I had my high powered binoculars out. And I had been, they call it glassing, or using my binoculars across this mountainside. And about 900 yards away, I spotted this huge deer. This is probably the biggest deer that I've ever spotted. And I was so excited. And when they're 900 yards away, you can move and talk. They, they can't hear you. So um, I told my buddy, I'm going to go hiking it closer because my, my vantage point's not good. That's a pretty long shot. And as I hiked, I got about a hundred yards closer. Mm -hmm. And then I put my binoculars back up and identified what I believed was the deer that I had been looking at, but it was really difficult, the shadows and the mm -hmm. tree branches. And as I'm looking at this, what I thought was a deer, I put my binoculars on it and I sat there and I crossed my arms and I just sat there staring mm -hmm. and I waited and I waited and after about 20 minutes, I'm thinking to myself, is that the deer? I, mm -hmm. I think it is. Like I'm 90% I'm sure that is the deer. Mm -hmm. But no movement, just stone cold, just no motion. After 40 minutes, 40 minutes of looking through these binoculars and sitting there, I had come to the conclusion that I, that was not the deer. Mm -hmm. And I was so mad at myself for wasting 40 minutes and who knows where the big deer went, right? Mm -hmm. I, it, by that point, it could have just crept away. I was so mad at myself. And just when I was about to take down my binoculars and just get mad at myself, I did one last look in the binoculars. And just as I looked, I saw a little ear twitch. It was the deer. <laughs> it was the deer. Wow. It was just stone cold motionless hiding behind all these branches that it had become something that it wasn't to me. Huh. And as I drove home from that hunt, I remember thinking to myself, there was something that was clearly a deer, but because it was motionless, it had become something that it wasn't to me. Mm. It became a rock. It mm. became a rock with some branches dangling across it. And I thought to myself, what other things in my life 
have become motionless and therefore have become something that they're not. Mm. And, and I reflected on my marriage. If there's no motion, movement, communication in my, my marriage, I could definitely see our marriage not working out. Mm. If, if there is no motion in the gospel in my life, I could definitely see the church becoming something that it's not supposed to be mm. to me. And I, and I reflected on this, you know, doing those little things, putting motion back into my faith, you know, praying often, listening to the conference talks, you know, studying the scriptures, attending church, partaking the sacrament, those things put motion back into the gospel. And therefore you understand and truly see the object for what it really truly is. And I have found that through this whole tragic experience, you cannot let your life stop. You can't let it seize. When it seizes, it will become something that it's not to you. Just like that deer became something different to me that day as it sat motionless. So that would be my last bit of advice uh, is, is when tragedy strikes, try to put motion back in your life. Mm. Get, get back to work. Put, put honest effort into work. Put an honest effort, daily effort into your marriage. Put an honest effort and daily motion into the gospel. And it will, you'll see it for what it truly is in your life instead of morphing into something that it's really not. Awesome. Man, I had a follow-up, but I think we're, this is a great place <laughs> to stop this. Good. CJ, I really appreciate your time with this. It's been a very meaningful conversation for me, and I hope it's been meaningful to you too. Um, it, it definitely has. I'm, I'm grateful to have done it. Well, there you have it. As you can tell from that conversation, there were so many one-liners that could be used as the title for this podcast. Some of them that I took out of it were that uh, sympathy may be more impro- appropriate than empathy in many cases. Um, tragedies are rough on marriage. When tragedy strikes, try to put motion back into your life. Also, just the crab bucket theory that he talks about in the wintry doctrine. I think that's super powerful also. also. So anyways, once again, if you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, please do so. Leave us a review. Leave us a rating. Share it with your friends who you think may need to hear this information Um, And just come back and listen to the next ones. These conversations are all super powerful and super meaningful to the person who is sharing them and can be to all of us if we open our hearts and minds to listen to the message and apply it into our own lives. I find it very powerful. Once again, I look forward to the Journey in Recovery series that will be starting January 6th and being released every Monday for 12 weeks. Um, If you or someone you know is a recovering addict who has actually worked the 12 steps of recovery and is still actively involved in the 12 steps of recovery, I would love to talk to them. I still have three or four weeks that I need to have filled. So have them reach out to me at jtlpod.com in the contact us area or email me at thejtlpodcast at gmail.com. Anyways, have a fantastic week. I look forward to releasing the next episode, which will be another powerful one, with a man who was born in Nazi Germany and lived through World War II as a child 
and just had some harrowing experiences and some amazing life experiences as he's moved on through life. Have a fantastic week. Mm-hmm.